This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of the Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Henry Brantz Giesen. Henry is a partner in our Auckland office and heads up uh, Denson's New Zealand's private wealth team. He's an expert in helping individuals and families secure their assets, dealing with disputes, supporting succession planning, and managing fiduciary risk. Uh, his practice focuses on advising family offices, high net worth individuals, athletes, entrepreneurs. Uh, and he's also an expert advisor to migrants too and investors in New Zealand. Helps him buy assets such as land and businesses. He's a graduate of the University of Canterbury and uh, the Alliance Manchester Business School. Our other guest today is Melinda Lehman. Uh, Melinda is the Investment Market Manager for North America for Immigration New Zealand. And so uh, she works for the New Zealand government in the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment. Previously, she had leading developmental roles and development roles, I should say, at Stanford University. She started her career as a brand manager at Clorox, and she has her MBA and undergrad from Stanford. Today's conversation, we'll talk about uh, several areas, uh, global mobility trends of wealthy families, the residency by investment program in New Zealand, uh, the family office industry in New Zealand, and New Zealand as a global financial jurisdiction and a home base for entrepreneurs. Let's get started. Melinda, talk to us about the residency by investment program. How did it get started and what was some of the reasoning behind it? Uh, thanks, Eddie. Um, well, actually, New Zealand has had uh, residency by investment programs, um, serial programs, for over 30 years now. Um, and the early versions of the programs focused really simply on attracting investment to New Zealand, and they didn't require much um, stay on the ground in New Zealand of the applicants, but those programs have evolved to the current one. And the current one is our longest um, ever program. It was started in 2009. And that one has a goal of attracting both smart people and their smart capital. So by that, I mean, um, the investments are significant. Um, over the past nearly 11 years, these people have invested over $10 billion in the New Zealand economy, which is very significant for an economy the size of New Zealand's. But really, even more importantly, they are contributing their human capital. So, you know, their skills and their networks. And so when they engage in New Zealand, they invest in New Zealand companies and they mentor and advise Kiwi entrepreneurs. Uh, and serve on boards of governance and so forth, um, get involved philanthropically. So they really are very, very involved as people as well as as their funds. So Henry, in, in terms of the program in New Zealand, how does it compare to other well-known uh, residency by investment programs in the world that you're, you've been familiar with with your clients? Uh, thanks, uh, Eddie and, and Melinda. Um, look, it's I suppose uh, there's two types of programs uh, that I'm aware of in the world which facilitate uh, capital and people uh, moving into uh, other countries. And those are generally divided into two categories. One is uh, sort of citizenship by investment programs um, by which um, an applicant can um, make an investment in a particular country and uh, meet a whole bunch of other criteria and then get um, the opportunity to become a citizen in fairly 
short order and in a fairly expedited manner. And those programs are, um, in my experience, generally offered by smaller uh, jurisdictions, often developing rather than developed countries. Um, and they're a really important part of the economy of those um, of those uh, sort of countries because they, they the, the, the capital that comes in is is, is really important to um, to the social programs and public um, services of those countries. Um, but New Zealand's program is is very different to that. New Zealand's program is more uh, consistent with um, with other sort of developed countries like Australia, the UK, uh, Canada, Ireland, and even the US, um, whereby uh, the proposition is one of residency uh, in, in consideration for that investment. And it's subject to, to quite a, a high threshold uh, in terms of um, the, 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 the amount uh, which is required to be invested and then, and then the other qualifying criteria and it's really intended I suppose uh, not necessarily to to um, to um, support existing public services or, or social services but really just to enhance um, a, 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 the, 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 um, the business community and I think really facilitate uh, capital and, and skills and networks into New Zealand to really drive innovation uh, and and um, uh, grow businesses. So uh, I'd say if we're to do a straight comparison, then um, it's quite a similar regime to that which is offered by Australia, Canada, Ireland. And as you know, Eddie, within the Dentons Network, we have offices in those jurisdictions as well as, as um, so many others. And in each of them, there, there will uh, almost certainly be some form of uh, program which will be designed to encourage capital and, and, and human movement uh, into those countries and really we um, we and I uh, in my role facilitate uh, that whether it be into New Zealand or into those other countries so we uh, just recently have been uh, involved in advising uh, clients uh, to move into some of those other countries as well Australia Canada and Ireland in particular also very attractive at the moment and have certain um, uh, advantages over New Zealand in terms of at the moment they're processing a lot quicker than New Zealand but in terms of the the actual uh, core criteria they're pretty similar you know the, the amounts uh, uh, required to invest are generally um, roughly the same uh, roughly comparable to Australia and to the UK um, and the other qualifying criteria are also um, fairly comparable as well. Well with global mobility in that vein do you see it as a, as a trend that is on the rise for families around the world and, you know, looking out to the clients that you work with? And then what are some factors behind families making that decision to be uh, participate in some of these programs? Yeah, I think that's, um, I think global mobility is on the rise and has been really for the last few hundred years, I suppose, ever since, um, I mean, if, you, if we talk about it in a really broad context and in a historical context, I mean, New Zealand is a nation of migrants and um, the indigenous people of New Zealand, the, the Maori first came to New Zealand uh, from the Pacific and from Hawaii um, on planned voyages and, and, and they populated New Zealand initially and then, um, then the English uh, uh, colonized or the British colonized New Zealand and then there's been a, a wave of migration uh, or waves of migration 
progressively over the last couple of hundred years. And I suppose uh, that's um, quite um, consistent with what's happened in other parts of the world uh, in, in during, during that period. And I suppose um, in more recent times, if we sort of talk about post-war, post-Second World War, uh, we've seen the relaxation of exchange controls in many jurisdictions. And uh, that, I think, has again seen um, or made it a lot easier for people and capital to move uh, between countries. And then I think you've probably seen um, uh, sort of the, uh, uh, the rise of the economic and financial uh, and political strength of China and other parts of, uh, or, or parts of Southeast Asia. And so again, we've seen a lot of global mobility uh, to and from those areas. And um, so that, can, that, that, and that I think is just an inevitable consequence of globalization, uh, which of course, as we all know, has, has uh, really escalated in the last 20 or 30 years. So as a consequence of that, I suppose New Zealand by default has become um, a lot more connected and closer to the rest of the world than, than it's ever been uh, in its history. And that's, um, I suppose, one of the interesting things about New Zealand is it, its greatest weakness has always been its distancy, the tyranny of distance from markets and from um, centres of power. And, and, and I guess um, that's always held us back. But I suppose with, with globalisation and technology, uh, that um, those hurdles or those... Um, obstacles are gradually being broken down and it is and, and just frankly even just prior to the pandemic the ability to get in and out by um, regular air, air, air bridges uh, has really benefited New Zealand and made uh, it a more more attractive and viable place for people to live and to conduct business so whilst none of that is really unique to New Zealand it's I guess a um, uh, it, it's it's a reflection of what's happened. Um, was it's it's an it's an outcome of uh, globalisation, and I think um, everybody who comes to New Zealand or, or moves uh, to another country, in my experience at least, has um, has their own unique set of reasons, and uh, they, they really are uh, entirely um, different from client to client. I mean, I have some clients who are members of uh, sort of aristocratic families in, in Europe who who still remember uh, the the sort of the, the aftermath of the of of the second world war the first world war and um, and the way in which land was appropriated and they have concerns about sort of things which many of us who were born more recently or, or, or went didn't live through that era probably don't think about, but to them uh, is really important. And then there's others uh, who, for whom it's, um, it may be a family reason for coming to New Zealand or moving to Canada or to Australia. Uh, for others, it may be financial, it may be business related. Uh, I think there's, there's a really uh, wide range of reasons for people moving. But I suppose um, the point is that it, it, if we, if we put aside the last 12 months or so, whilst we've been in this pandemic, it's never been easier uh, to move people and capital into uh, and around the world and uh, into, into certain countries and, and around the world. And um, and we're just so much more integrated through technology and, and through financial systems, I think, 
that we can conduct business in other countries far more easily uh, than possibly we ever did before. Now, I, I guess there's also a security element to it as well. There is in some countries um, a concern about political stability, about personal safety, and that can be uh, also a relevant factor. And we generally find that whenever there's a big event which uh, threatens those things, um, there is often a spike in interest in moving uh, to New Zealand. And I think uh, it's fair to say after some of the um, sort of recent, uh, recently sort of significant events like the decision from um, Great Britain to leave the EU and the election of uh, Trump in 2016, there were big spikes in interest uh, to move to New Zealand, as I'm sure there were to other countries. And um, similarly, I think the pandemic has, um, has increased that interest as well. That's good background, Henry, in terms of the, the overall space. Melinda, before we talk about the, the program itself, how did you get involved with New Zealand's residency by investment program? Uh, very good question, because obviously I am American. I'm not a Kiwi, um, but I do come by my love and affinity for New Zealand very, very naturally. Um, my husband and I actually made the decision many years ago when our kids were young to pick up and move our family to New Zealand um, as a family adventure and to expose our kids to a different view of the world. Um, and so we did that, um, anticipating that we would live there for a year or two. And of course, we had to apply for residence, uh, different, a different visa category. Um, but we did that and we got there. Um, we were in love with it. Uh, the kids were thriving, the schools were great, and we ended up living there for over six years. Um, so we all earned permanent residence through that process. And when we returned to California, uh, reluctantly I might add, um, I went back to work at Stanford University where I had worked prior and met a Kiwi um, who is our New Zealand Honorary Consul for the San Francisco Bay Area, Anthony Moss, and uh, met him several years ago. And he actually is the person who introduced this opportunity to me. And uh, as soon as I learned about it, I, I left at the chance. Well, give us the details. How, how does the program work? So we have we have two investor resident visas. Um, the uh, lower level one, the one that requires less of an investment, is the investor. It's also called the investor two resident visa, and that one requires a three million dollar New Zealand dollar investment invested for a four year investment period. Uh, that, that visa is a points-based visa, and it has an age limit of 65 years for the principal applicant, um, and then also requires English language ability, uh, at least three years of qualifying business experience, um, as well as the um, minimum $3 million investment. Um, and that also requires, over that four-year period, um, a stay in New Zealand of at least 438 days over that four-year investment period. Um, and that visa starts with an expression of interest where one is claiming points in each of those four areas, age, English language, um, uh, business experience, and the level of funds that they intend to transfer and invest. And then if that expression of interest meets the minimum requirements of the policy, they will be invited to apply um, for, the, for the visa. 
Um, and then the second visa is the Investor Plus visa. It's also called Investor One visa. And that one is our premium product. Um, it is a streamlined process. It requires a New Zealand $10 million investment for a three-year investment period. And over that three-year period, the principal applicant must spend a minimum 88 days in New Zealand. Um, and, and so the application uh, can include, um, will include the principal applicant, and that is the person that has to meet all of the qualifications of the policy. Um, and then also a secondary applicant, which is the spouse or partner, um, and any dependent children under the age of 25 um, can be on that application as well. And for adult children, they must be single with no children of their own and still fully or substantially dependent um, on, the, on the parents. Um, so at the end of the investment periods, the three or four year investment period, uh, all of the people on the application, assuming you know that they have fulfilled all the requirements, will receive New Zealand permanent residence visas. Um, and I will say New Zealand permanent residence is unique um, in that you, uh, once you earn it, you have it for life, uh, which is a, a real gift. And you don't need to spend a certain number of days every year or um, to renew the visa, you know, periodically to, to maintain it. In terms of the investments that you can make in the program, what are the what do they look like, or what are the criteria of those particular investments? Yep. So um, the basic requirements are um, are that they be you know um, capable of a commercial return in normal circumstances, that they be invested in New Zealand, in New Zealand, and in New Zealand currency that they have the potential to contribute to New Zealand's economy, and also that they not be for personal use for the investor. Um, but the range of acceptable investments is really quite broad. Um, it ranges from government or corporate bonds at the more conservative end of the spectrum through the full spectrum, um, equities, uh, public equities, um, private equity, um, uh, either done in a, a direct or a uh, an active way, um, and uh, and also some real estate investments are acceptable. For instance, commercial property um, or residential new build development. Again, not for one's own use, but as an investment. Um, and and I will add that up to fifteen percent of the qualifying investment can be in. Uh, philanthropic donations, so donations to recognized charities or nonprofits in New Zealand. Henry, in terms of the reasoning behind a decision like this, is it more of a tax play or is it a lifestyle play or is it a mixture of both? I mean, especially when you're thinking about families that uh, might live in a jurisdiction or come from a country where they've got uh, laws on worldwide income taxation. What, 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 what have you seen in from your perspective on that decision-making process? Yeah, look, I've done, um, I've acted for dozens upon dozens of applicants and then spoken to as many other potential clients who, who have considered uh, the program. And I've, I don't, I've never met a single applicant, you know, so anyone who's actually gone through the process who's ever done it um, for tax reasons. Uh, it's, it's almost always a lifestyle play I think for 
anyone uh, who I've spoken to or who's considering the program that's that's doing uh, or is considering it for solely for tax reasons, I think uh, a place like Monaco uh, or um, Malta is probably a better option. Um, New Zealand taxes its residents uh, it's on worldwide um, income. Uh, I suppose that's obviously quite different to the US where its citizens attack a tax on worldwide income. So um, for, for people who are, for example, in the US and they move here, um, they, they may be able to um, reduce their tax, um, the amount of tax they pay by coming here. But really that would be a um, ancillary sort of benefit rather than a primary reason um, for moving because of course, uh, for so long as they remain a US citizen, they'll still have to uh, file a return to the IRS. Uh, and so um, there's really, New Zealand, New Zealand isn't really in the, in the game of tax uh, competition or, or providing arbitrage opportunities, but I suppose indirectly and um, by default, sometimes people do achieve some um, benefits from a tax perspective because oftentimes they come from jurisdictions like the UK where there is inheritance tax or they come from, um, um, for example, I've just spoken to someone yesterday from Argentina who's, um, which is about to levy a very significant wealth tax. Um, and, um, and so in some cases, uh, if that is something that, is uh, undesirable for the applicant, then uh, by moving to New Zealand, there may be some benefits because for now at least, we have a relatively benign fiscal environment in the sense that our income tax rates are, are relatively high. Uh, the top tax rate is 33% currently, but it will go up to 39% shortly. Um, but there is no um, inheritance tax, there's no wealth tax, there's no estate duty. There's no general capital gains tax either. So. Uh, that can be attractive to entrepreneurs, um, but as we know in this globalised and connected world, um, and particularly with the Common Reporting Standard and the uh, and and FATCA, to which New Zealand is a, uh, is fully signed up to, financial institutions do now uh, exchange information about their foreign account holders to the uh, New Zealand Revenue Authority, which then automatically exchanges that information with the revenue authorities and other countries um, with, with which those uh, account holders have connections. So I would say that any, generally it's always a, a lifestyle play uh, and, um, or there may be some sort of family connection uh, rather than a, a tax being a major driver. Melinda, we've been talking about uh, a lot about residency. What about citizenship? Can somebody in this program ever become a New Zealand citizen? Yes, absolutely they can. Um, uh, as Henry made the really important comment earlier that, that these investor visas lead towards uh, permanent resident visas, residence, not citizenship. Um, if one does want to become a New Zealand citizen, after they have received their permanent residence visas and are living in New Zealand, um, after living another 
five years in New Zealand with their permanent residence visas and spending, um, I believe it's a minimum of 240 days per year in each of those five years in New Zealand on the ground, um, they can apply for uh, New Zealand citizenship. And, and that is not through Immigration New Zealand, it's through the, the Department for Internal Affairs. And I understand it's a pretty straightforward process from there. In terms of the countries that are coming to New Zealand as part of this program, are there is there sort of a top five or top ten that you that you that you keep track of as part of your work at the ministry? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. Over time, we've seen, especially you know, with the current visa policy um, since two thousand nine, the the lion's share of the people applying for and, and being approved for these visas are coming from China and including Hong Kong. Um, so I believe it's over, certainly over 50% of the approved applications since that period have, have been from China and, and Hong Kong. Um, but the US is, uh, I believe, second and the UK and Europe is, is probably, they probably take turns as second and third um, in the you know, number of applications. Um, notably, we have seen a huge uptick of interest um, uh, from the United States uh, since March of 2020 um, for the reasons that, that Henry just talked about. And so there are a lot of American uh, applications in the queue right now. Henry, going back to uh, evaluation in this, this program, I, I can imagine there's some significant risk management processes that the government has to put in there to ensure that, that the applicants that are part of it are coming there for the right reasons and they're not doing it for any nefarious reasons. What types of measures are in place uh, to make sure that those, the, the I's get dotted and the T's get crossed there? It's a good question, uh, Eddie, and a really important important part of the program I and mean, the integrity of the program is is just of such importance to all of us that um, work with applicants and, and and with the government obviously that that provides this pathway and uh, the criteria uh, for proving source of wealth uh, is 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 very stringent um, and, and the other criteria for just proving good character again is also very stringent. And if I talk to those separately, um, if I may, the, uh, obviously this, this requires a, um, a transfer of capital to New Zealand and a significant um, amount as well, 3 million or, or 10 million, or, uh, and, but in many cases, it's, it's much more than that, that, that actually is moved to and invested in New Zealand. And um, pro, at, at the time of making the application, the applicants uh, must uh, nominate assets that uh, he or she will liquidate and move uh, to New Zealand through the uh, banking system. And so, for example, an applicant in, in the US may have a portfolio with a US bank and um, and so it, it, that applicant will need to evidence how he or she earned that wealth. Um, and that will usually require a, um, a summary and some verification of that person's business 
history, um, evidence of a liquidity event, for example, or evidence of the aggregation of wealth through, um, through salaried employment or, or uh, possibly evidence of inheritance. And, um, and, and that's, that, that requires quite a lot of paperwork. It requires um, evidence uh, adduced from sort of third party uh, financial institutions or, or attorneys or others who, who can, can verify the uh, veracity of the, of the evidence that's uh, being, um, being presented. It's also important to, to evidence that that wealth is solely owned by the applicant and or uh, his or her spouse. And it's not, um, it's not uh, the pool, you know, it's not the, the consequence of a bunch of people pooling their assets to try and um, move it to New Zealand. Um, and then, um, and then what happens that very same wealth that's nominated in the application must be uh, liquidated and transferred through the, through the, the traditional uh, banking system. You can't um, nominate some assets and then uh, just prior to moving the funds, um, use some other assets from somewhere else, which haven't been verified in, in the way I described. Uh, it's quite common for us to make applications with with extensive information and documentation to support the source of wealth and for further um, questions to be asked uh, by the case officer and and, and we've um, so so people do need to be prepared uh, for um, further questions. I had a case a few years ago with a with a UK applicant where they required evidence of a liquidity event that happened about 16 years prior to the application. So. Uh, it is something uh, that the case officers take uh, very seriously. And, and I suppose the next part of that is, is just evidencing the good character of the applicant. And so making sure that they uh, have, a, have a clean criminal record um, and they, uh, that's, that's verified by uh, procurement of uh, criminal uh, or police reports in uh, the country in which they live and any other countries in which they've lived uh, over their lives for a substantial period of time. Um, and so for US applicants, that's an FBI report. In other countries, it'll be a, a, a report from a, a accredited government agency. And, um, and then a whole bunch of other criteria required to just evidence that person's identity as well. So so birth certificates, um, driver's licenses, proof of address, and those of those uh, requirements apply not just to the principal applicant, but also to the any secondary applicants or, or dependents uh, on the program. So it is a it is a rigorous process, and uh, I think um, possibly more rigorous than some of the other countries with which I'm familiar. I know there's been issues. Um, in recent years with the UK program, because I think there's been some people get through that without um, perhaps the same level of uh, scrutiny. Uh, but to date, um, uh, without wishing to tempt fate, we've, we've had a pretty good um, record, I think, in managing to ensure that only uh, the right people with good character and a clean source of funds Henry, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the family office climate in the ecosystem. 
in mm. New Zealand. And certainly there's been a lot of buzz recently about regional family office hubs like Singapore attracting some very large and very public names from family offices coming there and either setting up moving their operations offshore or setting up a satellite operation in, in, in your part of the world. How are you seeing this? Is this a, is this a trend? Is this a homegrown effort? Where, where are you seeing this, even with some of your neighbors in Australia? Yeah, it is interesting. I think it's a, um, look, it's fair to say that there's not a lot of incentive, I think, for a, a family office to move their whole operations to New Zealand, unless, of course, the, pr- the principal has decided to do exactly that for lifestyle reasons. Uh, but certainly, as you say, there's been a real um, influx of family offices into Singapore in particular. We, we were very connected, as you know, with our colleagues in Singapore and our Denton's colleagues in Singapore. And that's a really attractive jurisdiction for, um, for as you say, fam- satellite family offices or even um, sometimes the, um, the, the full operation we've seen move there and some of our clients um, are doing just that and um, so I think Singapore is a, is, a, is a different type of market to New Zealand from a family office perspective it's far more sophisticated far uh, more aware at, at a government level of the opportunity that family offices um, can provide and it's far closer to um, capital markets and, and, and deal flow than than New Zealand. So Singapore is a, is a very logical place in my mind for a US family office to have a satellite office or for a European family office to have a satellite uh, office. Uh, but it is fair to say that we do have some interest from family offices in New Zealand. Uh, generally, that's as a result of the principals having some lifestyle assets here or sometimes even having some business assets here and there are examples of uh, family offices from Europe and the US uh, that we work with and, I know, and, and, and others uh, that have set up satellite offices here. And um, again, their operations here are quite varied. Sometimes they're quite limited and it may be just in relation to lifestyle assets, but we also know of others that are setting up um, sort of tech incubators and really entering into the sort of the venture capital space in in quite an interesting way. So um, and to your and to your question about um, Australia, well again we're very closely connected to our Australian colleagues and in fact um, there is I've had I've, I've facilitated um, conversations with family offices who uh, have shown an interest in New Zealand, but for various reasons have decided not to proceed with New Zealand and have looked to Australia. I think that's a, uh, a bigger and more sophisticated family office market than, than exists in New Zealand. Um, and that I think it also probably has a bigger domestic family office market. So the domestic family office market in New Zealand is very small, but it's growing, uh, but it's small and, 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 and developing. Whereas in Australia, there are, um, some more significant and um, well, there is a more significant family office sector there. So I suppose that provides the opportunity for multifamily offices and um, 
and co-investment uh, with uh, new family offices coming in from other parts of the world. So uh, I think overall, um, for, for the reasons we've spoken about before uh, or earlier on, um, whether it be individuals or uh, family offices, there is just an increasing trend towards moving from, I guess, the historical uh, place of residence, which may be in, in, in places like US and Europe, uh, China, Hong Kong as well, into other markets or other jurisdictions which are perceived to have some advantages, uh, whether they be fiscal advantages. So um, we, we know Singapore is, is, a, is a very tax-friendly place to set up a family office and also uh, has regulations specifically designed uh, for family offices or maybe more for lifestyle reasons, uh, which, uh, and that's where New Zealand uh, often comes into the conversation. I spoke a little bit earlier about um, about tax, and one thing I neglected to say uh, was one thing about the about New Zealand, uh, which can be attractive, if not from a sort of a tax um, reduction point of view, but certainly from the point of view of avoiding duplication, is we do have a four-year window in New Zealand where after you move to New Zealand you're, you, there is an exemption on your offshore sourced income and that can be of interest to principals of family offices who might be wishing to move down here but not uh, uh, be subject to double taxation at least in their first four years. So that's probably the only real incentive that family offices would have to move to New Zealand as compared to say um, so say Singapore, but the other one is, is I suppose, the, the absence of a capital gains tax, and that can be useful for uh, family offices that may be involved in, in venture capital. Henry, expand on some of the comments that you made about entrepreneurs. Mm. Are, are you seeing New Zealand as a, a home base for some tech entrepreneurs or other kinds of folks that are looking at earlier stage or or, or as a place of business or or, or even a, as a financial jurisdiction? Yeah, we are. Um, I think it's taken a, a long time for the world to realize this, but because we don't have a general capital gains tax in New Zealand, it's actually a really good place for um, for incubating um, new technologies or, or, or new ventures. And um, and frankly, even uh, setting up a, a VC or, or private equity fund in New Zealand, in my view, there's actually some really significant advantages uh, to doing that. And we are seeing that happening. Uh, I, I advise several VCs who um, who are either in the New Zealand investment program or are considering entering it in, into it, or, or frankly, actually don't intend to live here, but just see it as a really interesting jurisdiction for setting up a VC fund um, and, um, and building it out here trialing technology here in a relatively small market before launching uh, it um, globally. So we are seeing quite, I personally am seeing quite a lot more interest in New Zealand from VCs. There's some interest in the sector here, the VC sector here, uh, which is and has always been fairly capital constrained, um, but, but, but full of great ideas and innovations and people. Um, so we're seeing a lot more of that, and and um, also we're seeing quite a few Kiwis coming home. So since the pandemic started, 
um, a lot of Kiwis have, who, who've generally always had to go to the US or go to Europe in order to raise capital and, and launch products. A lot of them are um, coming home with uh, new ideas and, and some capital and, and, and working from New Zealand, uh, trialing, trialing products uh, in New Zealand, um, raising capital here, deploying capital here. We're seeing a lot more of that. So I think absolutely the, the private equity and VC space in New Zealand is quite interesting and, and evolving quite rapidly. From the perspective of a global financial center, I think we, we're, we're always going to be a little bit far from the major markets uh, to ever be a big player in that space. Um, but what I would say, there is a role, I think, for New Zealand in the as a, as a global or an offshore or a, a, a midshore financial center in, in the sense that there are some back office functions that can be form, performed here um, such as fund administration, uh, re reporting, pricing on um, markets. Uh, and, and, and I do have clients who do exactly that uh, where they trade uh, or they deal with fund managers on, who are trading on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, for example, uh, because that exchange that closes just as we open. We can then, um, administrators here can then price assets and uh, report them uh, before, for example, Hong Kong opens up. So there are some um, some back office administrative functions which I think can can be um, performed here, which will which I think it has more potential than many people in New Zealand uh, realize or, or around the world realize. Before we get wrap up here, I'd like to ask both of you, in, in terms of your respective experience working with uh, families over there and with the uh, uh, residents, my investment programs, like, what do you know now and what do you wish you had known back when you got started in your respective fields? So Melinda, let's start with you. Um, you know, it's taken me some time. I've been in this role about four years. It's taken me some time to really um, connect and network with the full private sector that's involved in this space in New Zealand. Um, I happily met Henry, I think on my first trip to New Zealand, which was great. Um, and Henry's been a wonderful partner in this. And, uh, you know, I can best help the folks that I'm talking to by connecting them in with the private sector um, who can help them through the visa application process and the investment process, et cetera, and to just help them really connect into New Zealand as quickly as possible. So building out that network has been really important to me. And I rely on, you know, uh, colleagues like Henry um, to, to help me do that. So Henry, your lesson learned. Yeah, look, I, I'm not so sure if it's a hard lesson learned or, or not, but I think I just to, I think I really endorse what Melinda says there. This is um, this is not about selling residency. Uh, this is not about selling New Zealand. It's about, um, in my view, acting with integrity as a as an advisor and and even more, you know, and also as a lawyer within. A community like Denton's where we can procure solutions all over the world and so I like to see myself not really as a New Zealand lawyer who can only help in relation to New Zealand or only provide New Zealand solutions I like to see myself as a facilitator uh, for clients and for people who 
may never become clients, but just who 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 I could, might be able to help in some way, uh, and, and help as a and so. Um, I guess for me, it's just about building that network, as Melinda says, whether it be within New Zealand or within Dentons or, or, or otherwise, acting in a really open architecture way uh, with integrity and just helping clients to find solutions. And if there's, um, if there's a long-term relationship that I can have with that client from that interaction, then, then great. Um, but if I can just point someone in, in the right direction and, and, and help them in some way, then uh, that's also fine for me. So I think uh, it's really important. No one in New Zealand has all the solutions or no one um, that I am aware of anyway has all the solutions. So we work in really open architecture with uh, people like Melinda who are there on the ground in, in the US, for example, and then also on the ground here in New Zealand with a range of asset managers, uh, even other lawyers for that matter, um, and tax advisors, accountants, banks. There's a whole bunch of people that make up the news, the ecosystem here. I just encourage anyone that's interested in coming uh, through the system or learning more about it, just reach out we'll, and uh, we'll, we'll tell you straight uh, whether this is right or whether we think this is right for you. And if it's not, then we can quite easily and quite and we have frequently made introductions to our colleagues in Australia and to Canada and to Ireland and in other parts of the world because they all have uh, really good good programs uh, as well. So it's really important to get people that are experts in this area because it is quite specialised and there's not that many of us that do it. Um, so I suppose whether you use us or whether you use somebody else, another law firm, um, just make sure that they they've done this uh, regularly before and they've got good relationships with people like Melinda who, who really are so valuable because uh, they offer that really independent um, perspective and a government perspective, I think, which is really important. Thank you, Melinda and Henry, for joining today. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening and listening in today. And if you'd like to get in touch with our guests or if you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or are so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And as always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.